Hey there, welcome to Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with interesting people in e-com and tech to unpack their journeys and what they've learned along the way. I am your host, Tim. This is series one of 2021, and this is the final episode. I chat with Ava Pasco, a technology and e-commerce trailblazer, speaker, writer, co-founder of the world's first internet cafe, and e-commerce director at The Retail Practice. We discuss how the tragedy at Chernobyl led to her journey in technology, the shift from omni-channel to pure play D2C, working smarter, not harder, and why 2020 was more challenging than the dot-com crash. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Ava, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you coming to me from? Uh, hi, Tim. I'm uh, very well and I'm in North London, uh, a little yeah. bit frosty, but uh, looking forward to spring. <laughs> so am I. I would put summer in that category as well. Um, so we were just chatting about what we're going to talk about today. And, you know, a lot of the conversation is going to center around kind of 2020 and 2021, but I wanted to go back in time a little bit and just touch on your, um, very, very, very interesting, uh, and deep experience. So can you maybe just give me a little bit of an overview? Uh, I appreciate that might be difficult because you've done so much of like your journey to this point. Maybe, maybe we start with some of the highlights. So something like the Siberia Internet Cafe, like take me back to that time. Uh, well, my journey to uh, e-commerce started from Chernobyl, really, uh, because I was in Warsaw during uh, Chernobyl, 1986, uh, and, uh, you know, experienced the whole uh, problems of technology, which were caused mainly by poor use of interfaces. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had this mission to save the world from bad interfaces uh, and found myself in uh, London in um, Birkbeck College with one of the first degrees of uh, uh, user computer interface design was a college degree, but specializing in uh, UX uh, way before internet was a thing. So uh, I was, you know, going in with that idea that I will work in nuclear industry improving the interfaces and preventing the next Chernobyl. Uh, and then somehow on the way, internet has happened. And we worked on a project which is sort of parallel to Tim Berners-Lee, finding out that you know, the biggest solution for human problems of computers uh, was really World Wide Web, where you could mm -hmm. see all the choices on the screen and you had to just click on them as opposed to seeing blank white screens and having to remember the commands, which was you know, the domain of engineering. So when I discovered that, I realized this is now ready for human consumption. Um, and uh, instead of showing up to my viable for my PhD, uh, yeah. I started co-founded Siberia Cyber Cafe. Uh, that uh, was the first internet cafe in the world connecting to the full internet. And we had this wild idea that yeah. if we love the internet, then so will everybody else. 
uh, and we started training people online and using email, yeah. using uh, FTP. But the key thing is that uh, we started also payments. We started working on secure payments. So I think I've taken my first online payment about 1995 in Siberia. It was, it was like an online payment for the time on the screen. And we were terribly excited about it. It was like, oh my God, people will be able to put uh, their credit cards in the internet and won't worry about it. So then I understood that you know, we can get trust and we can get people to accept that virtual is as secure as physical. Obviously, you know, not saying that physical at that time was still full of fraud because there's probably more fraud in shops than it was in online. Um, but it was a very exciting journey. And then I kind of understood that, you know, I just really wanted to work with making uh, this online more hospitable for normal humans. And that's the path I stuck since. So I was invited to set up Topshop yeah. Online uh, back in 1999. So when we sold Siberia Cafe, we ended up with about 30 cafes. So we sold it to a Korean company uh, that took it into gaming and now has got about 3,000 cafes around the world, mainly gaming cafes. But I went a different path and took uh, the challenge of setting up Topshop Online. Um, so we decided to do the full works, including WAP, which was the early mobile. So I basically had the first stop shop online working about 1999. And then by 2000, we had WAP versions. So we were not only first uh, fashion online store, uh, but also first mobile. So when you think about it, the irony of it that I had uh, created for Topshop a multi-brand portal back in 2000 called Zoom. We actually own zoom.co.uk, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, and uh, Philip Green then bought Arcadia in 2002 and couldn't understand what we were doing, so he closed it. So the online top shop continued, but Zoom multi-brand fashion portal was closed. And on the day when ASOS bought a top shop for peanuts, I think that's probably his biggest regret. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if he's... Um thinking about it right now I'm, I'm i'm not i'm not too sure <laughs> but yeah um yeah okay so and then then at what point did you um sort of move from that into the, i suppose um the, the the kind of pure play direct consumer brands that you work with now because there's, there's a bit of a gap between that time and then kind of coming up to this this current era well you know i stayed with large brands which was then called omnichannel uh so brands which had stores and online uh, I stayed till about 2007, eight, and then I realized that you know the numbers were just not making sense anymore. So the margin on online shopping was huge, and the margin on stores was decreasing because of the business rates and also a number of different payments that you know the cost on running physical stores just enormous. So. Uh, I decided to make the move about 2010 when I started looking for pure place and everybody thought that it was still a little bit early, that we still needed shops, but I could see the behavior was shifting. You know, women were absolutely happy and trusting online stores to deliver, to accept returns uh, and to develop new relationships. They were basically ready. You know, mobile phone was the final nail to the omni-channel coffin, I think. Uh, and so I started looking for nice new platforms. And initially, I worked with Magento. Uh, we supported Magento for a big Dutch company, Honkemolen. So I learned quite a lot of Magento, but I found it really cumbersome. 
And uh, I knew that it wasn't really a proposition for smaller fashion brands because you needed a huge IT team. And there wasn't really any point in having rebuilding the huge IT teams for online companies. So I started looking for a smaller platform and I came across Shopify. So by around 2014, I was already uh, intensely involved in Shopify, uh, but it didn't have a good backend. It didn't have a good stock system. You know, Shopify was very sort of thin client, thin, thin e-commerce front end, yeah. but not backend. Uh, and uh, I was looking for something that I could glue together with it. And then I found NetSuite. And I think that was my, that was the first in the word combination of Shopify and NetSuite. And I remember people were saying like, what are you doing? You know, NetSuite is way too big. None of your clients will use it. It's overkill. And I thought, you know, if it's going to work, I don't want to be replatforming every two years. Let's just assume it will work and put it in. And we did. And as you know, because we did it together, that became the standard tech stack for, for fashion now. Definitely, yeah. I think uh, that that combination is um, got plenty of, of of great case studies in the in the Shopify and Netsuite world. Um, the, I'm keen to sort of like fast forward then. So we've kind of got up to the stage where you know you, you're in the direct consumer world and, and and Shopify and Netsuite, and I wanted to sort of like sort of pick apart last year a little bit. Um, I don't want to focus on COVID. <laughs> I want to focus on things that you sort of took away from 2020. So what were some of your key learnings of, of, the, of the past 12 months? The last 12 months were undoubtedly the hardest year in my digital retail career. And I, and I mean it, even taking into consideration the dot-com crash of 2000 and the 2000 drama we had when we thought all computer systems will collapse on us. Uh, so this year was harder. And the reason why it was harder uh, was that uh, it was kind of a game for two halves. You know, uh, I'm involved in fashion brands, most of it loungewear, nightwear, lingerie, cosmetics. And th those brands did very well in the first half of COVID. Uh, so we obviously had a big shift to online. Uh, but then the consumers, you know, got their furlough money and decided to entertain themselves through online shopping. So up to around October, it actually wasn't too bad. But then, uh, you know, after all the successes of forming remote work squads and shifting work to online, uh, getting laptops for everybody, getting Skype channels for everyone, you know, setting up Zoom routines, uh, accepting no printer live, we did all the right things. Uh, and we did it all with Televiewer, you know, remote IT setting. So I was quite happy with that. that that's a very useful piece of work, piece, piece of tool. But uh, the, then the problem started with uh, October when, you know, that second variant started appearing. And I think that was much, much harder because, uh, you know, we ha we've seen it with Americans in April that quite man many times I called by American suppliers who were late with something or something was problematic. And then you would find out, you know, oh my God, my accountant is off with COVID or our head of logistics is off with COVID. We haven't had that in working group age demographics in UK till about October. Came mid-October, just when you were getting to peak trading, just when you were getting to prepare for Brexit. And then suddenly people started getting ill. So mm -hmm. the traction, the, you know, it just, you couldn't really plan anything anymore because people were just not there. So that was really tough and also supporting people through that because, you know, sometimes they were very close members of the family. Sometimes they were members of the staff. 
Uh, and we had the problem that in fashion, you know, the production teams had to work in the offices. So it was this constant struggle how to make their life easier and how to make them safe. So the stress level was kind of really high. Uh, and then people started suffering more and more as December progressed and as we realized that this new variant really is harder. So I think it was kind of manageable till October, but October, November, December, really hard. And then the Brexit added in. So that was, you know, having to build EU sites, eu.com sites for people on very short notice and not really knowing fully how to spec it. So can you imagine we were trading peak trading for Black Friday, trading uh, Christmas sale and building extra sites in the meantime and coping with half of the suppliers off with COVID. So it was a real, real journey. And it's not over yet by no stretch of imagination. But I think my takeaway from that, that, you know, we trading through it, human ability to endure is enormous. And we're all learning and we're all pulling together. But I think the key is leadership, you know, that has never been more important now, particularly online when we don't see our teams, when it's all a bit, you know, remote being close, being over-communicating, you know, over, over doing the, the charts, you know, doing more communication than you think you need. That's so, so important. And clarity on strategy is so important. So I think my takeaways from 2020 is that it has put us through the mill. It certainly put us through the hardest challenge I've seen since probably year 2000. And it's not over yet, but pulling together and teamwork will get us through it. Hmm. Interesting insights. I know that um, you've been quite vocal on the on the move to work from home setups. So I'm keen to explore that in a little bit more detail. What's your take on it? Is you know our offices a thing of the past? How are you approaching this new um, work setup as we enter 2021? I, you know, I sit on the fence with that. I have to say because I have moved off office idea about a couple of years ago and I tell you why I loved open plan and my uh, Arcadia office in Topshop our Topshop online was the first open plan in Arcadia which I fought for quite hard and they they gave it to me and we loved it but you know that was before people started using airports uh, you know Apple and uh, both uh, noise cancelling headphones when uh, open plan just makes no sense anymore because millennials just stick the headphones on their head <laughs> and they don't listen to anything. So that's obviously no point having them there. And if I try to talk to somebody, you know, they look at me like I broke the sacred flow, you know, that I'm invading the private space. So I started thinking, you know, probably a couple of years ago that when, when the sort of peak airport situation started revealing itself that we really shouldn't have these people in the office because they mm. don't benefit from being there. And I don't benefit from having them around because they're happy at home listening to the music. So then I started thinking, you know, I was working with you guys on remote tools, you know, Asana, yep. uh, teamwork.com, uh, Gyro, basically anything that would support our work offline. So we were kind of going that way already. And obviously Shopify and WordPress and WooCommerce have been remote from the start. Like WordPress mm. has never had an office. So WooCommerce team that I work with a lot at that time never had an office. So I'm okay, if they are of this size and they don't have an office, then we really don't have an office. We shouldn't have an office. So I kind of thought it will take, you know, five to 10 years to transit, but we were kind of already making moves towards it. So when 
COVID happened, my brands were kind of ready. Uh, you know, we already had Asana, we already had Teamworks, we already had set up in place. So the move to home-based work with Skype or Slack, you know, it was easy. Mm-hmm. But I also noticed over the last 10 months that the downside of it is that for younger people, you know, it's quite hard because they don't have any social capital. They don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody's giving work to new people. You know, I'm, I've been around a while, so I'm busier than ever. I have more work than I can take because people know me. But my younger colleagues who are, you know, just as good, they don't know enough people. There is nowhere to network. You can't go to mm-hmm. events. You know, there's no serendipity. So they they don't get work. And uh, and that, I think, is a problem. So we probably have to find a balance. So find something that, you know, hopefully when COVID is over, I would think we will stay at home mostly, but find a way for new people to, you know, join the sectors, join the environment and learn from us pioneers, but, you know, have a physical aspect to networking. Whether we need physical aspect to uh offices, that remains to be seen. I think probably not. Because when you go to the city now, you know, it's tumbleweed. It's basically yeah. Yeah, heat, yeah, yeah. heat on rollerblades. <laughs> occasionally, you see some, you know, um, someone from the big senior people sometimes go in. I see them. But yeah. The top senior people have the corn flaps outside of coffee shops. But it's, you know, the whole work pattern has shifted for home and they all say that the efficiency is better than ever because they trust people to organize themselves and when you trust people people tend to organize themselves better Mm. you know people know what sort of rhythm of work suits them so i would predict that mostly open plan uh because where there's no need to be in the office but some element of not networking and you know lots of team events uh particularly you know um I'm Polish, so I quite like my my drinking sessions. So we definitely need to put <laughs> lots of pub sessions in to just keep keep the communication going. But whether whether we need the daytime offices, I doubt it. Mm, yeah, it's an interesting um, yeah, and also world, right? The advantage of it is you know flatter hierarchies. So I co-founded uh, something called Tech London Advocates Remote Working Group with Russ Shaw and Louisa Stevenson and Zoltan Bass. So we help bigger companies to transit. And I can see that, you know, that transition often means that because you don't need to supervise people that much, you know, people are self-motivated when they work from home. You don't need probably three of, you can lose three or four management layers with no impact. So in some way, I think we will see the bigger companies flattening and being more task-oriented rather than like hierarchy-oriented. Uh, so that that has been quite a revelation because, you know, it's not just... The medium is the message, you know, home, working from home, it's it's a flatter structure in a way. It's more like a smaller company mm-hmm. uh, because you can't really run, you know, 75,000 people company online with so many managers because you spend the whole time online managing rather than doing anything. So I see them cutting down the layers and it's quite exciting because they probably should have cut it anyway. But I do have a couple of battles. So my one battle is to make sure that we uh, mind how people use the time at home in a way of their health. You know, we know that we should talk, we should walk 10,000 steps every day. Yep. When we were working, we were walking probably 5,000 just because yep. you get to work and back. But yep. that has gone. 
And you know, I read somewhere that when you cut your uh, walk number of steps per day, you impact your life expectancy. You know, it's one mm. of the most vital stats. So I'm I'm fighting at the moment for everybody to plan the day, not you know, zooms morning to evening, but divide it into three or four sections with you know 20 minutes, half an hour walk outside, even just to get coffee or take the dog out, but but walk. Because we don't really understand, you know, what happens when body sits online for eight hours, but the research from Harvard is that it's not good. Sedentary, it's not good, exactly. No, sedentary lifestyle, you know, cuts your life expectancy. It seems nice because it's cozy and warm and, you know, you're next to your best coffee, but it's not good for you. And the all, second thing, you know, we're fighting to reclaim the dress because, you know, all the Zooms, everybody's just wearing pajamas and gray tops. So <laughs> at the moment we're campaigning to reclaim the dress and, you know, I might not see your bottom, but I want you to feel good and look great and, <laughs> and wear, wear lovely stuff when you're on it. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. I've, I've, I know we've talked about it before. And since talking to you, I've um, made more of an effort to, because sometimes the Zoom calls are unavoidable. However, take them outside. So take them. I've been uh, walking the dog and taking the Zoom calls at the same time. Um, and it's been quite liberating because a lot of the time you don't need to see people. You just need to hear what's going on and, and input and, and so forth. So that has been uh, very sage advice. I wanted to just quickly, uh, well, so you, you talked about Topshop and your kind of like work with them uh, in, in the early stages of their online um, expansion and, and kind of uh, ironically, it's an interesting news week for someone like Topshop and, and what's going on with them and, and, and ASOS. So I suppose with that, level of um, knowledge and, and, and experience, I'd be keen to understand where you see opportunities in retail right now and maybe things that you would avoid if you were advising somebody. Um, I think today there is huge amount of opportunities, mainly because we have a massive disruption. You know, the crisis causes change and we are in the middle of probably the biggest disruption in retail for about 100 years. So that will create you know, massive amount of new opportunities. I think the key thing is to focus on what, what people want to do, you know, stay relevant. Uh, and in fashion, I think it's definitely loungewear, but also color. Uh, you know, people are really sick and tired of, red and of black and gray. We want to see color. And I'm seeing lots of new designers coming up with the collections for color. And that's a kind of no man's land because you know, most brands are really strong on black, but not so much on color. You know, fashion, unfortunately, has zeroed in on monochrome. Uh, and I don't think that's what the customer wants. We want something to cheer them up. We want color. Uh, and also plus sizes. You know, I don't want to say anything, but we can talk about talking, you know, walking 10,000 steps. But I think a lot of people haven't quite got the memo because I can see the average sizing in UK has gone up during lockdown. Mm. So it was edging towards 14 and now it's we're edging towards 16. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same in America, it was huge anyway, and it's even bigger. So I think lockdown in some way showed us that, you know, the plus size area, it's, it's the area that we need to cater for. I mean, I would prefer people walk more and lose weight, but, you know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I work with a number of quite uh, pro-diversity brands like Bluebella, which put the first plus size model on the window in Madison Avenue for Victoria's Secret. So Ali Tate Cutler was the first plus size model ever in lingerie shops. So Bluebella has always embraced plus size, but I think they will do 
more of it and also brands like uh, Life Unlimited, Row and Zoe, nearby, you know, they're all looking at expanding the proposition in that space. I would avoid fresh food. Unfortunately, as much as people like ordering it, you know, the, at the moment with Brexit, it's almost impossible to export it. It costs mm. you 180 pounds to get a vet certificate for, you know, a piece of cheese to send out. Mm. Mm. So all the people we work with on hamper side or, you know, luxury food, they're all closed for now. They can't export because it's unviable. And I don't really see that unbundling itself anytime soon. So I would stay well, well out of it. Uh, and also the other areas is anything to do with wellness. You know, people are so stressed and so depressed and so incredibly down because of this lockdown. So the brands really need to dig deep and find the inner healer and support the customers through a proposition that it's not so much therapy, but, you know, something to cheer them up. So we yeah. always say heal to cheer. That's our job. But it's very hard to do when, you're, when your team is depressed. You know? So you need to kind of <laughs> re-energize re ourselves, re-energize re our own industry, and then go and do what we always do best, which is, you know, cheer people up. And I've noticed that, you know, consumer doesn't really want to buy stuff anymore. You know, they buy for values. They want from brands they're aligned with. Yep. So I'm a very big um, proponent of sustainability. I have been since the beginning. And actually Topshop, oddly enough, when it was still a public company, had really strong CSR, had really strong ethical sourcing and branding. That all went through the window with Philip Green, which, you know, I'm sure you know. <laughs> yes, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely not one of his strong suits, so as we know. Yeah. yeah Five-year-olds in the mines in Vietnam and all this. Yeah. But, you know, I spent a lot of time on sustainability and I've not, I noticed that the brands can make a bigger difference uh, than civic society. Civic society can push, but ultimately the brands have to deliver. And particularly because the people who work in the brands are now much more eco-conscious and sustainability conscious is beginning to tie in. You know, the consumer values and the workers' values are beginning to converge and brands are really making an effort now. So I do a lot of work on packaging Mm -hmm. improving sustainable packaging, but also working with the brands on just communicating um, what they do. Because a lot of brands do quite good things, but, you know, it's a journey. So one of the brands that we quite close is Aspiga, which mm -hmm. you know well. And Aspiga uh, has pretty much pioneered the sustainable sourcing where uh, women in Kenya make jewelry. And uh, their brand is sustaining quite a sizable community now, uh, for for development, beautiful theme, themed jewelry. And I think that is appreciated by the customers. You know, it's not so much the product, although the product's gorgeous, but it's the fact that the brand thought about it, you know, reflected on it, tried to be on the right side of fashion, because fashion, you know, is a pretty awful industry if you mm. let them be. So it's a hard, hard fight, but I'm excited about that. I think that's what the opportunities are, because that's what the customer wants from us. And if we were to take a, another sort of look backwards, um, you, you touched on last year being an incredibly challenging time. Over your career, what's been the most rewarding stage? Uh, interesting. It, during the last 20 years online, I think the most exciting time was really working with Topshop and making that uh, transition, you know, helping people to move online because at the beginning, 
engineers who are working on the system are saying, no, no, nobody will ever buy fashion online. People want to go and try it on. And we knew that, yes, it would be great to go and try it on, but who's got time to do that? You know, I'd rather go for a jog to the park or take the dock out rather than, you know, look for parking and queue up in a hot mm-hmm. shop. So, so making that tech work, and I was very lucky. I worked with a fantastic team from ICL, uh, led by Tony Booth, who then became my very good friend. So we managed to do that first top shop online in a really light touch way with probably better interfaces than many shops have today. So that was very exciting. And we had some amazing celebrities supporting us. So it was all very fabulous time. But more recently, I really enjoyed working on uh, Bluebella expansion in America, where we were able to put the plus size models and also transgender models in the windows and the catalogs. Mm -hmm. So we were supporting online rollout as a back of the offline rollout. But, you know, Americans are so backwards in diversity. They talk the good game, but they don't actually do it. Mm. So it was, it was, you know, the picture I've taken when I've seen the smile on the face of a friend of mine who is plus size, who's seen, you know, somebody like her on the window on Madison Avenue. It was like, wow. Because we had it in UK a little bit earlier. People were moving to diversity earlier, but America was really massively behind. So that was super exciting. And probably lastly, uh, working with uh, Cloud, you know, with with helping the female founders to create their companies without having to build a huge IT team, Mm. because it's not what retailers do well. You know, retailers overall are not really IT types. The culture is more flair, gut feel, spontaneity, you know, that doesn't really sit well with IT. So when the clouds appeared and I realized that actually we don't have to host all these shops under our desk, thank you, uh, I understood that that was a great opportunity for women founders. And that has been the case. You know, I was very lucky. I'm working with Polly McMaster in the Fold London, Emily Bendel in Bluebella, Joan Hopper nearby. You know, those brands would not have happened in the pre-cloud scenario because there wasn't just enough margin by the time you paid for your hosting, own hosting and manage it and magenta prices and all this, it just wouldn't have happened. So cloud has been really exciting. And now cloud is moving to green cloud. A lot of cloud hosting we use is based in Sweden, uh, powered by hydro, powered by water. So it's actually shifting towards more sustainable because remember hosting, it was one of the most unsustainable industries, not fashion, that is the most unsustainable industry is is internet hosting because all your pictures of your cats, uh, they all sit on data centers powered by Mm -hmm. coal. And it's only now we're seeing the shift to hydro and we're seeing a shift to alternative energy. So I'm very excited to be part of that. You... um... You touched on something really interesting there and, and some of the, the founders that you work with and you, you know, there's some really good examples. Like, I suppose, what is it that you look for in a founder when you're going to be working with a company? And I suppose what attributes of some of those founders that you mentioned, Emily, and so forth, uh, do you think are um, what people should be striving for? Uh, I think the most important thing in a founder is the will to stay the distance because, you know, being a startup founder, it's just solving problems 24 by 7. And you need to have that mentality of a winner that you will solve whatever life throws at you. So it's not so much the high IQ, although it obviously helps, 
but uh, the most important is to stay the distance. So resilience and believing in yourself, which is harder than you think because you know fashion is incredibly complex. And when you do your best and then the trend changes underneath your feet and then you end up with half a million worth of stock of something that people just don't want. And you think like, you know, why am I even doing that? Why am I here? You know, am I good enough? But you have to get over it and keep going and keep going. So the resilience, but also ability to work with teams. You know, we we worship founders and we put them on pedestal, but actually uh, behind every founder, there is usually a team of five, six people and the ability to pick them and work with them, sustain them and develop long-term relationship is absolutely vital. So the founders who are kind of one-man band, they don't last. I can't think about any. The founders that can work with a team last, and that's mm -hmm. where the work spreads among. So I think, you know, the, the, the good thing about working with women that we don't take work that seriously. You know, it's all great, nine to five, fantastic. We do our best, but, you know, people also have other passions, they have family, people go home at five o'clock and, you know, it's a naturally more balanced life. When I work with male founders, I love them, but they just never finish, you know, it's, it is 24 by seven. And I don't necessarily think it makes a better decision-making, you know, if you don't take weekend off, you come on Monday with the same thoughts you had on Friday. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. I don't really think that that works. Um, so it's better to find a founder with a hobby, even if it's, you know, triathlon or biking or something that gets them out of the house for weekend. Uh, because women do it naturally, you know, they would just hang out with friends and they go for champagne and, you know, we just entertain ourselves. But that that focus on work cannot be too relentless because it just does your head in. So, uh, again, as, as we're taking this um, slight look backwards, I, I'm, I'm keen to understand um, what we've talked about, the, the, the challenges and the rewards of your career. If you were to give your younger self any advice, what would it be? Uh, okay, if I was to go back and talk to young Ava in her 20s, I think she'd be yes. quite, quite shocked to see what I'm doing now because I think I was on the way to be an academic. I always thought that I would adapt at university. Uh, but I absolutely don't regret going towards internet. It's been an enormous fun and enormous privilege uh, for the last a couple of decades, but I think the biggest advice would be to work smarter, not longer. You know, I've always worked quite long hours, so it's only recently when I managed to rebalance a bit. Um, I think I was back at work after having my first child in a month. You know, I would just recommend to everybody to reflect more on how they work and focus on the 20% that makes a difference and not the 80% that's noise. You know, one of the good people who I follow on that kind of efficiency is Toby Lutke, actually from Shopify. Yep. Uh, he's found this book called Thinking in Systems, uh, which made quite a big impression on me because it was all about the framework on what are your values and what are the values of your customers and mm -hmm. how to focus on absolutely the key things that matter and be able to filter the stuff that is just background. And, you know, obviously that comes with experience, but, uh, you know, even at my age, you have to always keep keep reflecting and, and keep filtering out. Uh, I think also, you know, Harry Gordon Selfridge, the founder of Selfridges, 
he always said that his biggest advent, his biggest contribution was not the brands he brought to Selfridges, it's the brands he didn't. You know, being able to tell who is not important for that particular team, who what does not matter. So, you know, cut out the noise, cut out the chaff and keep focusing on on what's important. I think actually Philip Green, as much as, you know, he's a terrible character, but he he has got that ability to focus. And that's why Arcadia did as well as it did mm-hmm. until he took the eyes of the dashboard because he has a ab- very, very good ability to filter the important stuff. You, you mentioned, I want to touch on it very quickly because this was going to be one of my questions and it's probably a good segue. You know the world of academia. If if you weren't doing what you're doing and and working with these um, super interesting and cool brands and um, you know um, your own retail consultancy practice, what would you be doing? Would it be the world of academia? Is that where you would see yourself? Uh, yes, yes, I probably would have stayed because you know I love user interface and I still think that we torture our customers by putting them through the shopping carts as you are. You know, the, at the moment. We think that we are business, but when you watch Hodger recordings and uh, UX uh, studies, you know, people still suffer at the other end of our efforts. So it's still a massive amount of time to do. But the problem is that, you know, in the mm, sort of fast life of fashion online, it's very difficult to stop and focus on UX. You know, that's always the last thing on everybody's list. And I would love just to have like, you know, really time and space to think about it and just to keep improving it because we have improved a bit, but it's still a torture. It's still not VR. It's still not putting a nice helmet on and, you know, walking around beautiful shop and just picking things from virtual rocks. You know, I'm sure that's still to come. And I see my colleagues for state in academia doing some amazing research on virtual shops and virtual environments but we just haven't quite got it into mainstream yet. I'm keen to start to draw it to a close. I've got a couple of final questions for you. Um, The first one is my observation is that you've done quite a lot. Um, Very successful. You work with um, some really, really interesting brands and and, um, have had quite the journey. So someone like yourself who's had a very interesting and long career, what, what keeps you going and what's on the horizon? Uh, for me, the biggest challenge left is, I think, to extract fashion from being the worst industry from the sustainability point of view, from being the sort of real bet noir and the black sheep of, uh, uh, of industries. I think there is a small movement forward, but I think um, I would be delighted to see it in a few years' time being the leading sustainability industry, you know, not the one that's constantly catching up. Uh, we have challenges every day and sometimes we go backwards or then then forwards. So, you know, Buhu sourcing practices in Leicester is one of the cases where it definitely is business is going backwards. But at the same time, technology is helping us. And I love working with sustainable packaging suppliers, you know, working of them making, figuring out what it is, what we can do better. How can we work more sustainably in warehouses, how we can route optimize routing better. Uh, there's loads of stuff we can do, even basic stuff. So just, you know, bake in sustainability, not as an add-on. So that's one area which I'm very excited about. So I work with uh, some people in the food industry, like Strudels, uh, 
-hmm. So it's a company that makes straws uh, from waste of pasta. Mm -hmm. So they are completely sustainable. Uh, but there are also other approaches like glass uh, straws, which you just don't throw out at all. Uh, so there are different ways of going about it. You know, sometimes it's not necessarily sustainable material, just different thinking about mm -hmm. what it is, what we're using. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more at the conceptual level and more at the innovation level. But, you know, I'm telling you, there is plenty of work to do because fashion, you just have to watch them. Every time they improve something, they go and ruin it somewhere else. So <laughs> it's an ongoing struggle. Uh, and also, uh, you know, nutrition. I think uh, our habits of shopping for a weekly shop are finishing. You know, people won't do that. It won't be any need for that because we will all move to subscriptions and there will be subscriptions with specialized brands. So I'm quite excited about that because I haven't really done that much in the subscription area. You know, it's not something that fashion has been particularly good at. But I'm just moving, I can't tell you who, but I'm just moving with a couple of new projects which are basically offloading the need to shop for certain things off your head and just moving it to automation. And I think that mm -hmm. will be, you know, the next couple of years because the process is really nice and easy. People like smaller brands, but they just can't be bothered to keep going to them and mm. rebuy. So being able to offload it to the machine is probably the future. And the final question, um, I want to understand what you're going to do when life returns to normal. Have you got a particular restaurant that you want to go to? Have you got a particular destination or, or, or is it maybe both? <laughs> uh, when life returns to normal, you know, the first thing I will go to Switzerland because my second home is there. Oh, okay. Nice. I yeah. love the mountains and I love uh, being able to walk long walks i love walking but walking in the mountains you know is very special mm -hmm. so it's uh, it's a place in villars villars solalon uh, the beloved place of jackie stewart you know the racing yep. uh, driver community so it's a very very fun place and i can't believe that i haven't been there for nearly a year so that'll be the first thing uh, go and walk in in the alps and the second also uh, yes restaurants you know i'm very much people's person it's been really hard for me to, to go through this isolation. And I had to do it quite hardcore because I have some couple of people uh, at home who are shielding. So mm -hmm. I will be parked in Il Barretto in Marylebone for the Bisteca Fiorentina, like every day probably. And the second one, you know, the other one, you know, Hoxton Hotel in Shoreditch with yep. the wonderful staff and the best breakfast. And they always remember how they like your porridge. You know, that's the one near to our offices and i just can't wait to get back there <laughs> okay so people know where to find you at the back end of this year that's good um ava as always it's a pleasure thank you so much for joining me thank you very much privilege to be here thank you There you have it. A massive thank you to Ava for joining me. You can check her out at avapasco.com. That's E-V-A-P-A-S-C-O-E.com. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at clavio.com. And as always, if you like the episode, please subscribe, download, and tell every single one of your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time.